It's time for Legally Speaking on CFAX 1070 into the second half of our second hour. Michael, good morning. How are you? Good morning. Uh, great to be here. I'm doing well. Thank you. Always very interesting to see the latest affairs in the world of uh, court rulings and legal decisions that are continuing despite the substantial concerns that we have with COVID-19. Let's get started. Entrapment. What is entrapment? What does that mean? Yes, indeed. Uh, so we have had in Canada uh, for a number of years now uh, defined by a case called MAC. Uh, that was a case from back in 1998, uh, a definition from the Supreme Court of Canada about what amounts to entrapment. And in Canada, if somebody is entrapped into committing an offense, uh, even if they committed the actual act, uh, they would not be convicted of the offense. Um, and since 1988, it's been clear that there are uh, two different ways in which a person could become entrapped. Uh, the first way in which entrapment can occur uh, is if the police uh, engage in what's sometimes called random virtue testing. Uh, and the idea there would be that if the police present an opportunity uh, to commit a crime when they don't already have uh, a reasonable suspicion uh, that either the individual person they're targeting uh, or the area in which they're targeting is a place where uh, crimes uh, have been occurring or a person engaged in a particular type of crime. So an example of that would be, let's say the police decided to uh, just go down onto uh, Fort Street and put a wallet of uh, with the money sticking out of it on the sidewalk, leave it there and surveil it until somebody picks it up and uh, you know walks off with the wallet or cash mm -hmm. and then runs over and arrests them, right? The idea would be, look, you didn't have any reason to think that people were engaging in that kind of crime there. You're just testing everyone's virtue, and that's not permitted. Okay? Interesting. So the other way in which entrapment can occur um, is that if you have that reasonable suspicion, right, but you go beyond providing an opportunity for somebody to commit an offense and sort of overcome somebody's reasonable resistance to commit it. So if you went to somebody and said, um, you know, would you uh, sell me some marijuana, please? <laughs> or I guess that might now be legal in some circumstances. <laughs> Could you sell me some cocaine, please? And the person says, no, no, I want nothing to do with that. I'm a law-abiding citizen. And you plead with them how somebody's going to die and your mother is addicted and, uh, you know, she's on the verge of death if you don't comply. And, right, you, you yes. eventually overcome their resistance and eventually the person says, okay, fine, <laughs> right? I, I don't want to see anyone die. Uh, here you are. And then you say, aha, I'm an undercover police officer. You're under arrest. That would also be entrapment. And so there's been a, a live issue for a number of years now surrounding what about when police are investigating dial-a-dope operations? Um, and the way that would play out often is this. Uh, the police would get some information saying, you know, somebody's running a dial-a-dope operation, some nickname, you know, Teddy is operating a dial-a-dope operation. This is the phone number, right? Yes. And that information might come in by a tips line or some, uh, you know, person trying to uh, give information to the police to be released or by whatever means. And then the police would call the number and try to buy drugs. And so the issue then arose, is that entrapment? Uh, because the issue would be, look, did you have a reasonable suspicion uh, that somebody was selling drugs? Well, on what basis? Hmm. Um, and so that's the issue that the Supreme Court of Canada answered um, just this week. Um, it, and the uh, conclusion the Supreme Court of Canada came to is that a phone number can be treated 
in roughly the same way as a place could be treated. And the idea there is, let's say the police had a reasonable suspicion that people were dealing drugs on a particular street corner. Right? Right. And they say, look, you know, we see all these people down here with hand-to-hand transactions. We have a reasonable suspicion it's going on in that place. And some person unknown to them seems to be going up to people and engaging in some kind of hand-to-hand transaction there. You might approach them and see if they would sell you drugs, right? Hmm. Now, you might not have a reasonable suspicion that person will. Is, is that a crime? That For, forgive my ignorance. Is asking yeah. to buy drugs a crime? Uh, yes, that could be a crime. And right. offer, this is another important thing the Supreme Court of Canada points out in this case. Simply agreeing to sell somebody drugs is trafficking, offering to can amount to an offense. So you can actually complete the offense of drug trafficking on the phone, uh, and you can do so even if you don't have any drugs. Wow, (laughs) so you can lie but still be a drug trafficker for agreeing to traffic a substance you you have no possession of. Quite correct. Wow. Right, so somebody could say, this is a bag of cocaine, right? Would you like to purchase it from me? Sure. Here's some money, and you hand over some talcum powder. You can be guilty of trafficking. Wow. So... Um, that was one of the things the Supreme Court of Canada struggled with. It, it, you know, how do you deal with these sort of virtual places, both phone numbers or what about other things like uh, an online forum? What if the police go to some forum and say, "Will anyone here sell me drugs?" Yeah. Is that permitted, right? Yeah. And so the way they dealt with it, uh, the majority dealt with it, is they said, "Look, a phone number can be a place, kind of like the street corner, where you have a suspicion that people are dealing drugs, even if you don't know that that person is dealing drugs." So it can be viewed as a, a place, but uh, a bare tip, they point out, would not amount to reasonable suspicion. So let's say you had some Crime Stoppers tip saying, you know, somebody named Adam at this number is offering to sell drugs to people. Just call up and, <laughs> right, you should be able yes. to find them. Without more, that wouldn't be enough because you don't know who is giving you that tip. Why are they doing it? Maybe they're out for revenge. Maybe it's your angry ex-roommate. Who knows, uh-huh. right? More is required. But they've said that in some cases, that more that would be required, apart from a, a bare tip of unknown reliability that that phone number is associated with drug sales, can in some cases be formed during the course of the conversation on the phone when the police call it. And so this case involved a couple of different individuals, and one of them, when the police called up, they used this kind of language. They said, you can help me out. And the person responded saying, what do you need? Uh, and the Supreme Court of Canada concluded that that was particular language used by the drug subculture. Oh. You can help me out, and what do you need? Really? And those comments amounted to enough to turn that into a reasonable suspicion that the person on the phone was engaged in selling drugs. Oh. That's an interesting thing. Now, the other individual, uh, they dealt with another case. When the police called a number they had this tip for, and they called it up, the person did not respond in any positive way to what they referred to as slang particular to the drug subculture <laughs> until after the person had agreed to sell the drugs. And so in that case, they said, look, they didn't have the reasonable suspicion necessary to carry on. Now, I must say, listeners may be, and I certainly scratched my head a little bit at whether the can you help me out and what do you need amounted to sort of sufficient particular language particular to the drug culture. I'm not sure, but that's what the Supreme Court of Canada found. And so the takeaway here is that um, you can be entrapped if the police sort of call up and don't have that reasonable suspicion before they try to get somebody to sell drugs on the phone. But uh, you can pretty quickly uh, move from 
a bare suspicion that wouldn't be reasonable to what would be enough based on even things like, you know, what kind of language is used when there's this discussion on the phone. So there it is. It's a little bit of... uh, (laughs) a little bit of clarity, perhaps, uh, and a confirmation that that broad definition of what uh, entrapment can be uh, is still well and good. And they've said, look, that stood the test of time. It's a principled, stable, generally applicable threshold, those two ways you can commit entrapment. And so they tried to provide some clarification here dealing with phone numbers. And they also suggested use some language here talking about the sort of extra caution that might be necessary if you were using some other kind of remote, you know, I think they were envisioning like an online forum or something, right? A chat room or something of that sort. Um, so uh, we are uh, dragging the concept of uh, entrapment into the year 2020, um, and uh, that's what's required. You need to have a reasonable suspicion uh, before you uh, try to buy drugs from somebody Uh, or else uh, the uh, charge may wind up getting stayed as being an exercise in entrapment. And we need to be careful to avoid those terms of art so widely understood to have a precise meaning in the drug trade that they may constitute the basis of a reasonable suspicion. Quite quite right. Some of those fancy terms like, can you help me out? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Always learning new things here on CFAX 1070, legally speaking. I always enjoy it. We'll take a quick break, Michael Mulligan, if you want to stand by. Coming up next, and most Latin phrases, and I'm admitting my ignorance here, I learned by reading them, so I don't know how to pronounce all of them. Posse comitatus. Did I get that one right? We'll find out after the break. You know, I can always betray my ignorance accidentally from time to time because many complex terms, especially Latin ones, I learned by reading them, which means I never heard them spoken aloud. I merely read the writings of someone else. So I'm going to take a stab at this one, Michael Mulligan. You can tell me if I've got it right. Posse comitatus. What, what is that? Yes. Well, uh, this is an uh, interesting historical concept that has gotten some recent life uh, out of uh, Donald Trump uh, threatening to send in the U.S. military uh, to deal with the uh, rioting uh, that uh, some people were engaged in, uh, apart from the peaceful protests that were going on recently and continue in the United States. Um, and that that concept, uh, first part of it is posse, um, was, uh, is this. The concept was uh, the capacity of a sort of sheriff or justice official to require the entire population uh, over the age of 15 to be summoned to assist in keeping the peace uh, and arresting felons. And uh, that uh, actually has a uh, history uh, that uh, goes back to the United Kingdom, uh, and it continues to be alive in the United States. Um, In the United Kingdom in 1887, that common law concept uh, was actually uh, codified in the Sheriff's Act, uh, which permitted the sheriff uh, to command uh, the adult male population to come and form a posse uh, to help uh, come and arrest somebody or put down a riot. Can you imagine that state of affairs, Michael? The call goes out and all of us sort of show up in the town square wielding whatever weapons are at hand to go hunt down a, a criminal or a, or a wrongdoer? The hue, the hue and cry, come out and help. And that still goes on in the United States up until relatively recently. Wow. And many states have modern acts that permit that. Wow. For example, in 1977... Uh, in Aspen, Colorado, the uh, sheriff called out for a uh, posse of ordinary citizens with their own weapons to come and hunt for uh, Ted Bundy. Uh, wow. And so formed a posse, and off they went. Wow. Um, and uh, moder- states uh, in the United States, many of them have current acts that permit exactly that. Now, what is this 
uh, posse, I think it's Comatias. Comatias, okay. Um, what is that act, and why is that being talked about recently? Well, the United States, with that broad uh, history and of uh, uh, being able to call up anyone to come and enforce the law, put down riots, and arrest people, uh, one of the issue, an issue arose back in 1877. Uh, and it was after the Civil War in the United States, and federal troops uh, were in southern states and enforcing uh, laws surrounding uh, voting. Um, and there was a disputed U.S. presidential election, and it eventually produced a uh, compromise that involved the passage uh, of the Posse uh, Comitatus Act. And the act prohibited uh, the use of federal troops uh, from being used for those kind of domestic purposes. The southern states didn't want federal troops down there uh, involving themselves in how they were conducting uh, elections. Um, and so it was to prohibit from that broad concept of, hey, we can call out the entire population to go and enforce somebody, you know, track down Ted Bundy or something, mm-hmm. from excluding U.S. military, Right. So that was the purpose of the act, and that's why that act, which continues, uh, has been discussed in the context of can Donald Trump use the military uh, to put down uh, looting, for example. Now, fortunately for Mr. Trump, unfortunately maybe for everyone else, uh, that act has been rather watered down in the United States, and there's been another act called the Insurrection Act, which would... Uh, permit in some circumstances the use of federal troops to go and do things like put down um, riots. And so uh, there may now, as a result of the watering down of that act, be some authority to do that. Whether it's a terrible idea or not, it's another matter, but uh, it's not as clear as it might have been following that compromise in 1877. Now, all of this background might cause you to wonder, what about here? Yeah, what about here? Can you, can you be walking down the road and find yourself in a posse? Well, I'm not a posse guy. I just, I'm not. Can somebody else do it? <laughs> well, you might be able to escape uh, being uh, forced to go out and help put down a riot, but uh, the current Criminal Code of Canada actually has provisions in the form of uh, Section 67 and 68 that can compel a number of individuals to go and assist in putting down a riot. Those individuals include the mayor, the deputy mayor, a sheriff, uh, a justice, a warden or deputy warden of a prison, any of those individuals, if they receive notice that at any place within the jurisdiction of the person, 12 or more persons are unlawfully and riotously assembled, the individuals required, so the mayor, shall go to the place and after approaching as near as is safe, if the person is satisfied that a riot is in progress, they shall command silence, and thereupon make or cause to be made in a loud voice a proclamation in the following words, or to like effect. Here's what the mayor would be required to read out to everyone. Uh-huh. Her Majesty the Queen charges and commands all persons being assembled immediately to disperse and peaceably to depart to their habitations or to their lawful businesses on pain of being guilty of an offense for which on, con- on conviction they may be sentenced to imprisonment for life. God save the Queen. God save the Queen, by the way, is in all caps in the criminal code. 
And so as I read this, it caused me to think that perhaps this would be one of the good arguments for the 13 municipalities we've got around the region. That, of course, is going to provide us with 26 mayors and deputy mayors who could be, upon receiving notice of any sort of riotous assembly of 12 or more people, might be required to come out and under the criminal code, uh, you know, read the proclamation ending with God save the Queen. Now, I should warn everyone that you should do nothing to impede the mayor or deputy mayor, sheriff, or anyone else who's doing this, uh, yet, lest you do anything that would uh, impede, hinder, or, or oppose anyone who is making, about to make uh, such a proclamation. You uh, can be subject to imprisonment for life. And that after the uh, mayor, deputy mayor, any of those people read out the proclamation they're required to read, uh, if you do not peaceably uh, disperse within 30 minutes, um, you may be subject to imprisonment for life. And so while we don't have a posse concept in Canada, uh, we do have these provisions that might cause our you know, 13 mayors or deputy mayors or various wardens, justices, and so forth to have to come out and, insist and assist in uh, dispersing a riotous activity of 12 or more people. Now, you mentioned that the justice mayor or sheriff shall attend the location where riotous activity is happening. In whom does the law vest the authority to determine what is and is not riotous activity? In that individual. So okay. the, the mayor, sheriff, deputy mayor is required to attend. If you didn't do it, you'd be committing an offense. You must do it upon receiving notice if you're a mayor or any of these other people. And you're required to approach as near as is safe. You then must determine uh, whether you're satisfied that there is a riot in progress. And if so, uh, command silence and then make that declaration in a loud voice. Uh, and then people better take off uh, lest they be uh, arrested and charged with a breach of Section 68. It would seem that reviewing such a decision would be somewhat cumbersome, given the timely nature of the, uh, the requirement to tell the people to leave. Well, I, I think the, uh, the likely cell phone video of the mayor uh, reading off the proclamation ending with God save the Queen <laughs> might make for a more easy assessment of that now than it's possible in the past. Oh, speaking of cell phones, we've got four minutes left. The Court of Appeal has found that one can be convicted of using an electronic device even if it has special software that is meant to disable it in the car. What's the story on this one? Yeah, this was a Victoria case, actually, and it was a person who was uh, driving and spotted with a cell phone holding it up against the steering wheel, uh -huh. uh, and he was charged with using uh, an electronic device. Went to trial, uh, and the, uh, the justice was satisfied that the device had software on it that prevented it from being used, special software to make it safe in the car, so if you're in a car, it wouldn't operate in any way. And in fact, I recall that judgment, the police officer actually went out with the individual, drove around and confirmed, yes, indeed, the phone doesn't work. Yes. It can't be used. And so the justice acquitted the man on the basis that, well, this just wasn't held in a position that it could be used. You can't use it in any position. It's got this software on it. And there was some reference to that software on ICBC's website. And indeed, it seems like a good idea to encourage people to have that. Yes. Well, the Crown appealed. Uh, it went off on a summary conviction appeal, and the judge there found that um, on a quite slightly different take that it wasn't an electronic device within the meaning of the act uh, because it couldn't be used. So a slightly different way of getting to the same result, the man should still be acquitted. Very sadly for the man, it went to the Court of Appeal. The province just didn't go give up, uh, and the Court of Appeal uh, interpreted those sections saying, no, no, even if the device cannot be used, 
because it's got that safety software on it, uh-huh. you can still be convicted. Huh. Um, and, you know, perhaps what this is is that, you know, by the time a case gets to the Court of Appeal, the actual facts and the individual are a little more remote, right? Uh, and you wind up sort of interpreting, you know, what is the language of this statute and what does use mean and what does an electronic device mean? Yes. And so it came to this sort of statutory interpretation and said, no, no, all this can be included uh, based on the wording of this act. The man can be convicted. Now, I should say this. What this case really points out, and we've talked about this before, is that this legislation needs to be updated. Mm-hmm. It needs to be updated because it is so broad that it captures people who don't pose any danger, right? Yes. The first yes. is the device that cannot be used because it has safety software on it, and they're sort of moving the inoperable device somewhere in their car. It does not pose a hazard. And if this legislation permits a conviction in those circumstances, and that's what the Court of Appeal has found that it does, uh, the legislature has to fix that. And that may not be the responsibility of the court. They're just interpreting what does this language mean in this act. But we shouldn't be uh, in our haste to ensure safety for people, uh, having the effect of uh, convicting people who may be morally innocent and don't pose any hazard. And you want to encourage people to do things like, hey, put some software on it so the phone doesn't ring and messages don't come through and you can't use the thing. Of course we'd want to encourage that to be used. And if we convict people that are doing things like that, uh, it is unnecessary, is going to broadly undermine support for the uh, the justice system, yes, uh, and uh, we ought to get that fixed. And so the the responsibility for fixing that isn't really with the court of appeal. The responsibility for fixing that is with the legislature, and they should get that fixed and quickly, because the implication of convictions of this kind can mean the person's prohibited from driving. Yes, and for some people that means unemployment. And so you shouldn't be causing people who are morally innocent and not posing any hazard and doing things to ensure safety, uh, being put in a position where they could lose their livelihood, that's not fair, right, or reasonable. And the legislature ought to get on promptly with fixing that so we're not uh, convicting people that ought not to be convicted in a, a broad, sort of principled, moral sense. So, Agreed. quick legislation. Agreed. Yeah. Michael Mulligan, thank you for your time, your knowledge, your insight, as always. It is greatly appreciated. All out of time, but until next week. Always a pleasure. Thank you so much. All right. We'll talk to you again soon. Michael Mulligan, barrister and solicitor with Mulligan Defense Lawyers, legally speaking.